Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. At the end of 2016, a good time to look back on the year that was and ahead to 2017. And we begin today with M&A. Joining us now is Peter Tegg. He's co-head of M&A at Citigroup. And great to have you with us here in New York. Let's uh, let's start with how you measure the the uh, the health of the M and A marketplace. We'll look back on on 2016. How was it, and and how do you assess how good it was? Oh, we had a we had a very strong 2016. Um, it wasn't as it wasn't as strong as 2015, which was uh, which was a record. But uh, we're down about 20 percent from that level, roughly. Um, but it's still second best uh, second best M and M and A year since the uh, financial crisis. And what was leading it on sort of sector by by sector basis? Where did you see the most growth, the most movement? Uh, we saw an awful lot of movement in uh, technology, uh, awful lot of movement in uh, the industrial space. Uh, it was a relatively a relatively light year for industrial M and A in 2015, and we saw a bounce back uh, on that, and so. Those two sectors saw significant increases. We saw a little bit less in the way of telecoms, for instance, and a little bit less relative to pharma uh, than we had in the, in the prior year. What What is driving it at this point? Uh, is it complementarity? Is it, is it something else? How are these companies coming together? Uh, I think, I think uh, and, and Tom Keene made this point a little earlier this morning, um, I think the focus now is, is much more on, on strategic combinations and what I would call intelligent deal-making. Um, it's a it's a challenging world environment. It's a risky world environment, and in that environment, uh, I think the investors have become more discerning as to what types of transactions really make sense. There was a period of time uh, from sort of 11 to halfway through 15 where pretty much M&A, any M&A activity was greeted with applause from the investor community, and uh, that has definitely become what I would call it's returned to the norm in terms of uh, in terms of the types of responsiveness that the uh, the investors have, and they've become more thoughtful about what's a good deal and what's not a good deal. How are your clients? How are people who are, are weighing uh, mergers dealing with the uncertainty? I think about how in the IPO space, there's been a tendency here, here to sort of stop and and wait, perhaps wait out whatever uncertainty there there is. Are you seeing that in the M and A space uh, as well? What are clients saying to you? Uh, I think uh, I think that the there's going to be a bit of a pause, perhaps. Uh, in certain sectors that are going to be potentially very impacted by uh, by the new administration and some of the changes that have been uh, at least vocalized, uh, an example is healthcare. Um, I think there's uh, there's been enough noise around the Affordable Care Act that uh, that we might see a bit of a pause uh, within that space as as companies try to figure out what the policies really are. Um, there has been an awful lot of talk, but not an awful lot of, of really concrete policy making. And of course, that still is subject to a congressional process, which is uh, which is difficult to do. There you go. How much does does regulation tend to change from from term to term? You have uh, staff appointments in the Justice Department, for instance. You have people who are, are career public servants. Yeah. Do do the do the metrics by which they gauge judge these deals change every four years? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think the metrics change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there can definitely be um, 
leanings in terms of the way that the way a particular administration or a particular uh, a particular official interprets that data. We have definitely seen in the last couple of years, um, which is interesting, because it, it it certainly wasn't necessarily representative of the uh, the full eight years of of the prior administration. Um, we've seen in the last couple of years that uh, there, there has been a more hawkish tone uh, coming out of the regulators in terms of their reaction to transactions. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not uh, that will change dramatically or whether it will change slowly, I think is difficult to uh, is difficult to call. But I, I would argue that there's likely to be change. And I, I think we're going to see a, an environment which, again, um, I can only respond to what our president-elect's sure. uh, commentary has been. There seems to be a bias towards, uh, towards a slightly looser regulatory environment. And what have you heard from him uh, about deal-making? He talks, he talks about, about deal-making a lot yeah. in, sort of, in sort of grand terms and large terms. But uh, with your kind of deal-making, the was there a lot of rhetoric about it, a lot of clarity about what his uh, policy positions would the, be? The answer is uh, not much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think we've heard some things from, uh, from the president-elect that definitely will affect deal-making. Um, stimulus spending um, makes a makes a difference to how economy how companies feel about uh, the broad economic environment. Um, regulation makes a difference as to their optimism or lack of optimism around whether deals get done, and taxation can make a significant difference in terms of both the cost of capital and uh, and the ability to deploy it. What do clients do amid the the political noise that follows the announcement of these these big deals? I think of the big agribusness deals, for instance. And no, no, stop. Sorry. They begin their <laughs> Christmas shopping. <laughs> That's what I'm doing today. There you go. That's what one client uh, is doing over here. But how do they filter that out? Do your clients pay much attention to sort of that, or is the focus much more here on on the regulatory side? Do you mean how how are the companies reacting to... to Exactly, the the political noise are being... Yeah, exactly. uh, Well, I think think a company, uh, particularly we're talking about large companies uh, that are affected by the political environment, uh, they're not blind to it, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they need to be thoughtful about a political reaction and, and whether or not that can make a difference to the rest of their business. But I would argue that uh, that most of that thinking goes in prior to the announcement yeah. of the transaction, um, as opposed to the, the follow-through, hopefully, should be the execution around a, a well-thought-out strategy that, that was developed prior to the announcement of the transaction. Let me mind the, the globalness of your title. You're head of, uh, co-head of Global Deals. We, we've heard so much from our colleague Jeff McCracken and others about um, China's interest in getting into mergers and acquisitions uh, around the world. What's been motivating that? What motivates China's interest here to, to merge with companies outside? Well, I think there's, uh, I think there's a, a couple of things. Um, the, the Chinese have definitely been much more aggressive uh, about, uh, about deal-making on a cross-border basis. Um, I think that's driven by a desire to access technology. It's a, driven by a desire to access commodities. Uh, it's a, driven, in some cases, by a desire potentially to offshore capital. Um, I think those motivations, they can be difficult to discern. Um, the, the fact is that in certain, in certain sensitive areas, uh, I think the, uh, the Chinese companies, and particularly state-owned companies, have started to hit some roadblocks in terms of their ability to execute on that strategy. And therefore, uh, there's perhaps some more, uh, some more caution around, uh, around yeah. the level of activity. Peter Tag with us with Citigroup. We've been talking about the cards you are dealt. <laughs> Does a guy like you care about interest rates, or is that just a myth that that there's so much money sloshing around that on a day-to-day basis, combination people are actually immune to interest rate dynamics? I 
I think the short answer is we're not paying much attention to it right mm. now. Yeah. Um, now, my qu- I, next I've, I've been I've been doing this for long enough to certainly have seen environments where it mattered a great deal. Um, but I would say, but that we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near that right Thank now. Thank you. <laughs> and this week we've been modeling one, one, I think it was Craig Bishop with RBC Capital Markets made very clear nothing happens till the 10-year prints 3%. Hmm. He says that's sort of an, a huge emotional hurdle. We're nowhere near that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I'm prepared to put a number on it, but I, I certainly would tell you that a 25 basis point uh, rise hmm. in rates or for that matter a 50 basis point right. rise or a 75 <clears throat> basis point rise, I would actually argue that uh, – yeah that a rise indicates optimism, mm. and optimism might be a good thing. Uh, David Gurr, please make a note to Mr. Corbett, who I'm sure is listening, that we did not put a, n- a number on interest <laughs> rates this morning. Mr. Very David. good. Thank you. I'll dash it off. Uh, you know, when, when, you, when you look at uh, just sort of the, the – we hear a lot about mergers in the energy space. Is that going to be a, a ripe sector for opportunity in, in 2017, do you think? It's uh, a good question. The, the, the energy sector um, – We've looked at two different types of uh, – w- when we think about the energy sector, I think we need to bifurcate it. Sure. I think there's the upstream space, which tends to be the the very – what people think of when they think about energy. Yeah. There has been a huge amount of activity in the midstream space, yes. the infrastructure around energy, um, which has, has really been quite constant over the last, uh, the last several years, uh, particularly around the master limited partnership uh, sector. But on the upstream side – uh, the volatility in the underlying crude price has made it very difficult to cross a trade. Um, when buyers and sellers uh, disagree, or at least have a lack of congruity uh-huh. in terms of what the outlook for the crude price is, it can be quite difficult to get uh, those two buyer, those two sides to uh, to come together on a price. I was talking, Peter, about synergy and paradigm because you really represent the antithesis of this uh, M&A jargon malarkey. It's out there. You studied, I mean, first of all, we just heard in our New York weather report, it's cold in New York. Might I point <laughs> out, greatest understatement we have a they. guy We have a guy in here from Ithaca, New York, yeah. a guy in here from Clinton, New York, and a guy in here from Rochester. These New York City people, Peter, they have no clue how cold it can get at Hamilton the College. Word, the word lake effect means nothing. Exactly. They, they have no clue. what the, they, they, they just, you know, in, in, in Clinton, New York, there's, there's winter, late winter, and the 4th of July, and that's all there is. <laughs> There's to it. Um, you spoke at Hamilton College a while back, and, and I, mean, I mean this seriously, and that you represent an M&A, which is go out, talk to the client, no financial energy, uh, engineering, none of the blather of M&A. You learned that tending bar in London. What did you learn tending bar in London that you drag over to Corbett's M&A shop? I think... Um... I think tending bar in London is a good lesson, both in work ethic and in talking to people. Um, and listening. That's 90% of what you do as a bartender besides figure out whether to use olives or lemon, right? Well, yeah. In the bar I worked in, uh, no one was ordering anything that had olives or lemons in it. Um, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you about uh, – bearing in mind, you probably want to talk about any, any companies in specific. Let's, uh, let, let, let me introduce the, uh, the latest news here about Yahoo and Verizon. Just to ask you how companies approach something – like that, when you when you're mid deal, uh, and you have a big eventuality like that, how how do the the parties to that deal broker some sort of agreement or figure out what to do next? Here we have uh, Verizon dealing with the fact that Yahoo announced a, a one billion users' information was compromised back in 2013. So I imagine the impulse at this point is to find out why it took so long for for a company to find that out. But how how do companies uh, reevaluate a, a deal like that midstream? 
Well, obviously, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a, a deep dive done in terms of in terms of the substance of it. What's what are the facts? Um, what do the facts mean for the relative value? What does the contractual agreement tell you that you have to do? Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 going to be entirely facts and circumstances specific, but obviously, a whole lot of people are going to be working very very hard to to try to turn a an unexpected and undesirable fact pattern uh, and translate that into the, the realities of a, of a transaction that's already out there. Uh, yeah. The discount rate at which the present value of an investment's future cash flow equals the cost of investment when the IRR of an investment is greater than the required return, Peter Tag makes a paycheck. That's the definition off the Bloomberg. Is Mr. Trump going to raise IRR for global Wall Street? For global Wall Street, I guess there's a question about what is what is Mr. Trump going to do uh, in terms of the overall the overall economy. I think a combination of stimulus, a little less regulation, and uh, and lower tax rates, certainly uh, certainly to the extent that all three of those can argue can arguably be a, a net benefit to our clients. One would hope that that uh, yeah, translates through mm-hmm. to, a, to okay. a net benefit to, to us. To make this more sophisticated and to get you into a bigger set of troubles at Citigroup, <laughs> Willem Bowder and his economic team believes in lower terminal values. Trump is pushing against that with a reflation. Are you managing for this year, next year, five years out based on Bowder's lower terminal values? Or can you see truly a paradigm shift? I'm, I'm talking against myself here. A paradigm shift towards a higher IRR? Well, uh, reflation um, and the extent to which that translates through, certainly in the near term, to, uh, to higher growth and a higher top line is a, is a net positive. Of course, inflation eventually catches up to you and it starts moving through costs as well. Um, ultimately, I think terminal values are a function of what do you see your discount yeah, rate at? And you- a lower tax rate, for example... Is okay, be I agree with you with a one-off of a tax rate and a structural change here, but you just nailed it. <laughs> Guys like you in industrial America work in a nominal rate space. They sort of like inflation, unlike everybody listening to this program that's got to, uh, uh, frankly, deal in an inflation-adjusted space. Well, I think, in, as I say, I think inflation, inflation eventually gets to both the costs and the top line. Um, I think uh, how that translates to value is going to be specific to an industry. I, you know, whether we're talking about technology or whether we're talking about uh, yeah. the uh, the old Rust Belt economy, it's a, okay. it's a different answer. This has been great. Peter Tate, thank you so much. It's three below at Hamilton College right now. <laughs> balmy. <laughs> Downright balmy. Peter Tate, a singer. Thank you so much. Jeffrey Rosenberg is out of Carnegie Mellon. He brings a serious quant chop to the whole idea, a strategy. Uh, Jeffrey, let me give you the Friday open question. What will you write about for consumption Monday morning? Well, the consumption outlook is being bolstered, Tom, by rising wages. The most important driver of consumption is real income growth. And what you've seen is wage inflation accelerating faster than inflation. And so that's 
the fundamental support for the consumption uh, outlook. The fundamental chart I had earlier this week was a 10-year yield with a Trump reflation, and we go 180 to 260 now. I get that. There are three vectors, Jeffrey Rosenberg. One is, okay, this is great, and then we roll over to where we were before in some way. Or it's a jump condition, and we level out here. Or we're, we jump as we have, and then we build upon this out a year or two. Where are you? Where is BlackRock? Well, you know, we're more in the optimistic camp that we can build on this, and it's a outlook in 2017 for rising rates. That doesn't mean that it's going to go in one direction. Uh, I don't mean a uh, boy band reference there. Uh, <laughs> sorry. It's a Friday. Um, Jeffrey, it's... you're absolutely perfect. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I've somebody, heard it. Somebody... How many times have I heard it at home? 185 yeah. times, I think. Oh my God! Continue, two, two surprises in 15 seconds there. <laughs> yeah, no. I, what I meant, what I meant to say is, it doesn't. It doesn't mean it's going to go in a straight line upward. There's going to be uh, pullbacks, and most importantly, you know, there's there's some challenges. Tom, the most important thing you said in the opening were all those currencies are related to China. Uh, the Asian currency declines that you're talking about are really because the Chinese currency is declining. It's it's one of the downside risks we have to to consider. It's, it's the front page of the Wall Street Journal this morning. I think everybody knows the story. But when we have an optimistic outlook, as we do for 2017, we, we, it's not saying it's going to go in a straight line and that the risks aren't going to show up that can push yields lower if some of these concerns come back. But overall, uh, the, the growth outlook is, is, is uh, going to be pushing rates higher, we think, in 17. Jeffrey, it feels like ancient history now, but if we, we go back to uh, to January and February, all the trouble that we saw with China and its reserves and the currency, uh, that subsided as we moved on to Brexit and the U.S. presidential election, presidential election and all of that. But uh, what is your outlook for the Chinese currency going forward uh, in the new year? Could we have a reprisal of, of what we saw uh, almost a year ago today? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't have to forecast it um we're 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 seeing it right now. Uh, if you look at some of what's going on in terms of the interbank lending rates, the Hong Kong overnight rates, uh, what's going on in just in terms of the currency levels itself, you you see a very similar pattern to the pressures that we saw a year ago. I don't think there's nearly the same degree of focus on it because we're we're focused on the growth story. And there's two ways in uh, of kind of interp- <coughs> interpreting the, the currency moves. One is, <coughs> excuse me. From the positive side of the growth and this is dollar strength as opposed to Chinese weakness. Remember last year it was about commodity prices and and credit concerns, and you don't have those concerns at the same time, right? Our commodity story is much more stable uh, to positive. So one of the things that's easing some of the concerns uh, from a macro perspective is maybe this is U.S. growth-led, and therefore that can be overwhelming or, or more positive to, to the negative right. side. Seth Masters at Bernstein, Jeff Rosenberg, gave a beautiful dissertation this morning of the conflict between higher yields, meaning a yield pickup, and you can extrapolate it over to equities, versus price decline – which will be to our advantage in the first quarter of next year? Are we advantaged by rising yields overcoming price decline, or will we be disadvantaged? 
Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying before. There's 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 sort of good increases in interest rates, and yeah. then there can be bad increases in interest rates. And clearly, as we see the equity market reaction to the to the shock upward in 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 interest rates, this is from the good perspective, because it's driven by growth and inflationary expectations. One of the ways in which we see that in the bond market is the breakdown between increases in interest rates between inflation expectations and increases in interest rates from what are called real interest rate increases. Real interest rate increases can be bad in the sense that they tighten financial conditions. They put a lot of pressure on currencies. Inflationary increases. Now, we've got to be careful here, Tom, because we're talking about a good form of inflation when inflation expectations are going from deflationary concerns to inflationary concerns. That's where I think we are in the first quarter. If we get too far ahead in terms of inflation, that'll be something that we'll have to worry about. That's not in our outlook for the first part of 2017. Really, for most of 2017, this is reflationary outlook where reflation is good for the economy, it's good for financial markets. What did you make of, of, of uh, Janet Yellen's commentary on the potential for, for fiscal stimulus? She did speak about fiscal stimulus, if, if only briefly. She was asked about it, and she said that she and some of her colleagues noted it. Her colleagues noted it at the, at the meeting. Uh, what did you make of what she had to say? Well, she's in a very difficult position, and the Fed has put itself in a very difficult position by having moved to a greater form of transparency. This is something unique, and it's going to be the first time that the Fed finds itself in a position of publicly writing down its forecast for economic growth in an environment where fiscal policy is taking the mantle of leadership. This is about what kind of expectations do we have on the impact of these fiscal policies on our growth outlook. The most remarkable thing about the FOMC meeting in December is, is that they basically said there was no impact. If you look at the SEP statement of economic projections with regards to economic forecasts, virtually no change out for the long run. That is a remarkable statement. It'll be very hard if this really big and important fundamental fiscal reform package that the incoming right. administration is talking about comes to pass, they're going to have to adjust those growth forecasts. Yeah. So I think that's going to be the focal point okay. of the markets throughout I, 2017. I 100% I, I, I agree. But Jeffrey, by definition, this is an ex post institution. There's no way they can get out in front of legislation. I don't see that in any of our history. It, they can't get out in front of the legislation, but once the legislation is out, and it's going to be out early, right? This isn't a 2018 or 19 program. This is a first-year new administration economic program. There's going to have to be some kind of – the markets are telling you that. Private economists yeah. are telling you that. And so they're going to have to opine on it. It's going to put them in an awkward position because it's going to be public and it's going to be transparent right. this time around. But nevertheless, it's affecting the growth outlook. Obviously, today in December, it's too speculative. It's too uncertain. We don't know. That's fine. But at some point, we are going to know. It's going to be in the legislative language. So we're going to have to have more right. clarity as to what we think its impact is from our central bank on the prospects for growth and, therefore, yeah. for the path of monetary policy. Well, Jeffrey Rosenberg with us at BlackRock uh, as we look at the linkages of strategies here. Jeffrey, are we correlated? What I've noticed sort of in the pulsing last three, four days, ex Yellen, is – some things are correlated, and then two hours later, they drift away, and other things come to bear. What do you see on the Bloomberg screen? 
Yeah, it's actually one of our themes in our BlackRock Investment Outlook that the correlations that we've expected to see both across debt versus equity, across EM and, and currencies, EM and commodities, uh, a, a lot of those co correlations have displayed less certainty, uh, less reliability than, than we've, we've come to expect. I, I think on the big one for investors' portfolios, which is, which is debt and equity, we, we've seen this a number of times. This is when particularly bond yields are going much higher, and the fear that's driving them higher is, is not the most recent move, not, not the post-election move. We saw this earlier in, in, in September when rate moves were happening, and it was causing some concern on equities. Bonds are going down, and stocks are going down at the same time. Uh, we've seen a couple of episodes. Obviously, 2013's taper tantrum was, was a big example of that, and it's an example of how putting portfolios together of stocks and bonds, as we transition away from quantitative easing, yeah. it, it gets more challenging. I mean, you say we're transitioning away from quantitative easing. Are we? Oh, absolutely. And it's important to take the global perspective. Oh, come on, we had one we, rate. Come on, Jeff. We had one that. rate increase. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 Tom, it's not about the rate increases. Look at what the Bank of Japan did. Look at what the ECB signaled okay. in terms of moving ever so slightly. I agree. It's, it's, it's a bond geek here. So, you know, we're looking at the, at the very small moves. But yet, if you go back to the Bank of Japan, it wasn't small. They abandoned negative interest rate policy. They recognized the limits to monetary policy. In the ECB's case, they downshifted <laughs> the size. Yes, they extended the, the timing, but they downshifted the size. And in the Fed's case, in the U.S., something for 2017 that's going to get back on the radar screen is what do they do about the size of the balance sheet? And that's going to be a, a big market story in 2017. We've kind of ignored the reinvestment policy, but they said once we get on with increasing rates. And what they told us yesterday or two days ago was, uh, we're going to be increasing the pace to three hikes a year. Now people are going to start asking, well, you told us once you get on with normalization, the next phase is going to be normalization. Normalization is about moving even further away from quantitative easing. Jeffrey, you've written about the, the potential populism. I asked you about uh, how Janet Yellen and her colleagues are wrestling with the prospects of an infrastructure spending package. Did she miss an opportunity, do you think, at the news conference this week to talk about what could be a uh, huge weight here on the economy when you look at the potential for, for tariffs, for instance? Well, it, it's not clear that the news conference discussing the monetary policy decision of the FOMC is the right forum for that. Now, interestingly, what just went on the calendar is uh, on Monday, she's going to be giving a commencement speech. So it may be that the commencement speech is the avenue through which she decides to address some of these bigger issues. Now, the topic at the commencement speech is not the infrastructure and the fiscal stimulus, it's jobs, but rather right? yeah. it's jobs. So it's not clear that'll necessarily be the title, but, but that may be a better forum for a more expansive discussion on some of those issues. How has your, your positioning changed here, uh, I won't say since the meeting, but surrounding the meeting? What, what, what changes have you made here over the last week or so? Uh, the, the, since the FOMC meeting? Yes. Well, well, well clearly, uh, the, this has been a, a big shift 
shift with regards to the performance of interest rates along the maturity spectrum. The market going into the meeting, ourselves going into the meeting, did not expect this communication. Now, some may say it's an accidental communication, but it's yeah. a communication nevertheless through the dots plot, signaling three hikes rather than two hikes. So, so the front end of the curve certainly is, is borne okay. the, the brunt of that. What of the curve is the perfect path for banking? I can't figure it out. Do they want a high? Do they want a, a much higher ten-year yield and a peg two-year? Do they want? What's the perfect path for banking? So the, so, so, so the path for banking is is one in which interest rates are rising, the curve is steepening, but the pace of the increase in interest rates is not so large as to bring about a whole other set of concerns. The concerns about, hey, we're moving too far too fast. This is negative for growth. It's mm -hmm. negative for the stock market. It's negative for global growth because of its impact on the dollar. And you bring about some concerns again right. around financial yeah. conditions tightening. Jeffrey Rosenberg, you have been absolutely perfect. Thank you so much. Jeff Rosenberg with BlackRock. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. One of the great supporters of Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance has been John Taylor of Stanford University. Uh, he is, without question, one of our great macroeconomists, of course, on rules and discretion. He has immense authority and leans towards, tilts towards the advantages of rules, including his rule or the amendments of his rule, the Taylor uh, rule. David Gurrett goes without saying that Mr. Taylor's name is mentioned often across the Bloomberg platform. And with increasing frequency, yes, I should say. Yes, <laughs> in the last number of days. Uh, Professor Taylor, wonderful to speak to you again. It's been way, way too long. Um, John Taylor, uh, your name is out there. It is always out there when we speak of chairman, vice chairman, governors of our central bank, the Federal Reserve System. Have you spoken with Mr. Trump's transition team about their economics? And have you spoken directly with a president-elect about uh, a future job in Washington? You know, there's always... As you say, and by the way, great to be back, Tom. There's always rumors about what's going on, and I've been interested in this subject for so long. I really want to see ways which the Fed can, you know, improve, get back to policies that I think worked better in the past. That's what I'm talking about, and I think there's a there's a lot going on with policy. I'm positive about the possibility of tax reform, regulatory reform. And there's last week I testified in the. Congress about the possibility of monetary reform. So it's, right. it's, it's good at this point, and I think I just want to keep talking about that. Have you testified at the Trump Tower or by telephone <laughs> with the Trump Tower? It was, uh, yeah, it was a, no, I'm talking about testimony in the uh, House Financial right. Services Committee, the Monetary Policy right. Committee, which is uh, public right. for anybody to listen, and including uh, people in the transition. Dr. Taylor, please comment on uh, the news that Lawrence Kudlow, formerly with Bear Stearns and 
uh, for years visible on CNBC that Larry Kudlow would be a chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, I believe we go back to McChesney Martin when there was a a CEA head who is a non-PhD. Is that a debate worth having, or is Mr. Kudlow qualified? Well, Larry has been so outspoken and, and good about tax reform and regulatory reform, you know, good um, market-based policies. And I think that's important to have someone like Larry there doing that. So you know, there's different ways for people to be qualified for things, but I think that's a really important aspect that he's he's been out there. He's, he's uh, got these strong principles, and uh, and you, you, you'll hear about those if, if he takes that job. I think Professor Taylor there, Tom, was uh, was saying he doesn't want to trade the palm trees for the Potomac uh, earlier in answer to your your question. <laughs> he, he did that with courage during <laughs> and after nine eleven, and yeah. deserved a, a rest out west. David. There you go, John Taylor. You know, I, I talking about Larry Kudlow here. I wonder if, if if you could give us some sense of how he might shape that role if he does get the the position. I think a lot of us know the term Council of Economic Advisors, have some familiarity with it. But what what power does that body within the White House have to shape economic policy? Well, first of all, it's it's in the law. The Employment Act of 1946 created it, a uh, three-member council, and it's had uh, influence in different ways over the years. Alan Greenspan was the chair for a while. Arthur Burns was the chair for a while. And it's uh, it's continued. But there's more economists now in Washington there than there was back when it was set up in 1946. But it's still very important. It is important for it to have a good, objective economic advice. It's not wedded to a particular, whether it's labor or business. It's really talking about the, the good reasons to have a good economic policy. So it is important, and I hope the president listens. You mentioned that testimony that you gave uh, before the uh, the Subcommittee on Monetary Policy and, and Trade for the Committee on, on Financial Services at the House. What what does a more transparent Fed look like to you? We can talk about uh, your rule and rules-based uh, Fed, uh, Fed Reserve here in, in a minute, but how, how more transparent should this Fed get? What would that transparency look like? Well, the main thing is for them to outline their strategy. Uh, sometimes it's called rule, but strategy is a better word for setting the policy instrument, the interest rate. They do uh, some of that internally. They simulate and talk about policy rules, uh, including the Taylor rule, but others as well. So the main thing is to be transparent about that, and that's really what some of the legislation is asking to do. It's the Fed's job to choose the strategy, independent agency, but it will maintain its independence better if it says what it is. Professor, I'm pleased to tell you that the acclaimed Taylor function on the Bloomberg Professional Service now has an adjustment for policy inertia, which is rho times a previous Fed rate plus one minus rho times John Taylor's Taylor estimate. This involves one, two, three, four, five, six, seven plug-ins wandering over to a Phelpsian Nehru minus unemployment on the right side of the equation. Professor Taylor will be holding a pop quiz in our next segment. <laughs> David Gurren, Tom Keene with us. John Taylor of Stanford University. Professor Taylor, I know David wants to get back to current events, but first, I look at where we are, where Chair Yellen is, where Governor Carney is, and we fold into the world of John Taylor what we saw from the late Thomas Schelling of Harvard and Maryland. I go back to the strategy of conflict, 1960, Tom Schelling, and the idea within his early part of that classic enforcement, communication, and strategic moves. Now, the Taylor rule and monetary theory isn't the courage that Tom Schelling had thinking about nuclear war. 
But when I look at enforcement, communication, and strategic moves, what can we learn on rules and discretion from uh, Tom Schelling? We can learn so much about the commitment and about the predictability. And so you say what you're going to do and follow through. Those are very important lessons for monetary policymakers. It helps monetary policy work more effectively. So I think it's important. It's- I look, Professor Taylor, at uh, the theories that are out there now, and I would suggest from the media and from all of our listeners, we're almost exhausted by too much messaging. Is part of a shift away from discretion towards a tailor-fed rules, less communication? I think what's the advantage of us having a strategy or a rule, you don't have to keep talking about it all the time. People begin to understand it. When Paul Volcker was at the Fed, he would go to the Jackson Hole meetings and wouldn't have to say much at all because people kind of knew the policy. So I think you're right, Tom. There's now there's so much talk, it actually can uh, reduce transparency. Professor Taylor, the phone rings at the top of Hoover Tower. Uh, it is one Donald Trump calling from what I assume is a gilded phone on the 26th floor of the Trump Tower here in New York. And He's trust asking me, you. <laughs> John Chauvin has made sure that Professor Taylor will pick up a gilded phone. There you go. In Stanford, Palo Alto. He's got your number. He says, uh, Professor Taylor, we have some office space for you in the Eccles building. We'd like you to sit at the head of the table. What do you say? Uh, this kind of, you know, again, just answering Tom and you a little bit, what's important to me is a good monetary policy. And so I write about it, I talk about it, and there's always rumors like this and always questions like this. But, you know, seriously, we have uh, opportunities now, I think, that we didn't have before for some of the reforms that would uh, avoid some of the very serious problems we had in the Great Recession and the slow recovery. And that's what I want to be focused on, really. Well, if that's the case, let's go there. Have you advised uh, the transition team or the president-elect on appropriate names to be these governors, these empty seats of governors. All of us, Professor Taylor, can uh, agree that is most unfortunate. Yeah, I think they're going to go ahead and uh, fill these positions. A lot of open positions uh, that have occurred uh, because of the difficulty of confirmation and agreement. I hope that we get past that. I think there's a sort of reform on personnel and how the White House is going to work. But yeah. oh, it's very important to do that. And uh, you know, the principles of monetary policy are, are there. It's, it's right. not rocket science, but it's pretty well understood. Professor Taylor, I just want to tell you, people are listening coast to coast. Rachel from Lafayette, Indiana, emails in and says, Professor Taylor's not telling you anything <laughs> about his future. I just want you to know, they're listening coast to coast, Professor David. <laughs> Rules-based policy, that's what I'm saying. Rules-based <laughs> policy. Commitment, yeah. Talk about the path forward for reform here. You've testified, as you said, on, on, on Capitol Hill. People are talking more about this. Do you see this as being at all collaborative between Fed policymakers and, and Congress? In other words, would it be more palatable, these reforms, if there, were, uh, if there were more of a dialogue, more conversation between the Fed and Capitol Hill? Absolutely. It's very important. And, and previous reforms were that way. Actually, it's not un, uh, in, uncommon for the Fed to be resistant at the beginning, but then to say, hey, this makes sense, and then work uh, with the legislative language uh, as, as something works. So I'm, I'm hopeful that will happen. I think it's, it's a very important part of how these things get done. How have you amended, uh, and this is Fisher, Phelps, and Taylor all combined together ages ago, how do you amend Professor Taylor 
Sticky wages and sticky prices after our great distortion in the financial repression we've all enjoyed. Is, is the stickiness of those two important things, is, it, is, is your interpretation of it changed? I think those kinds of uh, rigidities, if you like, or institutional features are there. They, they change. And, you know, you got prices set on the Internet. It goes very quickly. Yeah. But, but it's actually there's some commonalities. I just did a paper for this new handbook of macroeconomics that traced the uh, development of these ideas, and they're hanging together quite well. they modified with the change in technology, but it's pretty remarkable how long they've been, they've been going, long-staying power. So if I go to your – to keep the shameless plug going, <laughs> Professor Taylor, if I go to your Economics One blog, and folks, I just sent out a World Cup in the Battle of Ideas, Bruno Meyer, Harold James, and Jean-Pierre yeah. Landau, which is a fabulous book. We interviewed Professor Bruno Meyer, uh, 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 Professor Taylor uh, of Princeton on this. That's a school in New Jersey, uh, by the way, <laughs> Professor. Uh, but He's familiar. <laughs> you're flogging a two-volume book now. Tell us about your new hand book of macroeconomics well it's great there's lots of pages there's a total of <laughs> 70, 72 contributors it's uh really the state of thinking on macroeconomics uh it's heavy going for lots of people you're going to warn about the math that's for sure but you know it's people like ed prescott and lars hansen and and marcus brunemeyer for that matter who've contributed a lot of time and effort to put forth what their view is of uh-huh. of things that I think people be surprised. It's you know there's been work going on before the crisis, since the crisis, and uh, it's pro- it's progress, real progress. We'll get it out. Thank you so much, Professor Taylor. Thank you so much for not answering our questions today. <laughs> John Taylor teaches. We did yeoman's work. We he, te- he teaches at Stanford University and frankly teaches all of us as well. I particularly enjoyed his comments on Mr. Cudlow. I think that's sort of in the weekend zeitgeist, if you would. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.